Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, can you enjoy your work? Is it possible? You know, I still do hear that question a lot. You know, it comes up because of a variety of reasons. These days, people think, well, with the economy, is that really possible? With a downturn like it is, is it really possible to enjoy our work or is this just a time to be practical and realistic? And then, of course, we always have those people who with a, um, whoa, with a uh, somewhat limited theology assume that work still is just a curse from God and there's no real point in figuring out how to make it enjoyable. It's just something we have to do to get through this miserable earthly life. Well, I hope you're not in one of those camps. I hope you really do believe it is possible. Sometimes people ask me, you know, Dan, are you really living the life that you're talking about? And I tell them, you know, come see me. Come spend half a day with me. And you figure it out. You determine if it, if I'm doing work that I really enjoy, if I have a life that I really enjoy. And I trust you'd be convinced of that after spending a little time here. Well, this is a time each week. If you're new to our uh, podcast, welcome in. We welcome the new listeners coming in each week. Welcome your feedback. If you have questions that you want to ask, you can just... Go to the podcast link on 48days.com, shoot in a question there, or just shoot a question to askdan at 48days.com. Get them both ways. Enjoy the questions that you share, share in little bits of your lives as we unpack it together and come up with solutions that can benefit all of us. Here are some of the questions we're going to be dealing with this this week, today. Last October, I had a stroke and had to have immediate brain surgery. Can you suggest some strategies for dealing with this kind of situation? Another person says, I work in a job where my employer and some co-workers treat me very poorly. I can't reason with them as they would yell and scream if challenged. What would Dan do? All right, we can handle that. Another guy says, how do I apply Covey's seven habits to car sales? How do you win or grow trust in less than an hour? Well, it can be done in less than that. We'll lay that out, how to do that. Someone says, I was not encouraged to dream growing up, so I'm finding it difficult now. Are there good books or resources on not living a life of regret and building self-esteem? Yes, there are. I tell people frequently the easiest way to change your level of success is to read good books. And I'll give you some tips there for some that will help in that particular situation. I'm a 56-year-old self-employed CPA. I'm not passionate about the work anymore. Should I sell my business and then figure out what to do myself. Well, we'll look at that. Okay, a couple things coming up here. We've got a teleseminar coming up. Ashley wanted to make sure that I mentioned this. One of the questions that comes up again and again and again, it doesn't matter if I'm speaking to 18-year-olds or to 70-year-olds, it's the question that in essence still is, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Now, people say that kind of with a, a smirk on their face of embarrassment if they're 55 years old. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. It's not something to figure out one time. But on the 17th, I think that's on a, well, that's going to be on a Thursday night. I'm going to do a teleseminar. Now, we'll be shooting out information about this, so you'll be updated about it. But information about how you can participate, just jump on the computer and just listen in, but I'm going to be going through real principles about how to figure out 
who you are and why you're here and what that means. So I hope you'll join us for that. Have some events coming up here, the next one here at the sanctuary. Incidentally, speaking about, you know, people getting a glimpse into the life I'm living, uh, people do enjoy coming out here to the sanctuary, our converted barn just on the outskirts in Franklin, Tennessee. Beautiful place in the country, but uh, people like to come out here. And our next event live here will be our Right to the Bank event, which is incidentally sold out. Now, we're more than a month out from that event still, and it's just a reminder that if you want to participate in some of these live events we've got, plan ahead. I mean, surely you are planning three, four months out in your life at this point. You ought to be planning the rest of the year at this point. So if you want to come to one of our events, jump in now. The Right to the Bank one is sold out. Uh, That's where we help people who want to write books, leverage that and turn it into real income. It's interesting that there are so many people who are interested in writing. I just saw some stats yesterday. We're told that in 2009, 764,000 titles were self-published. Now, there were 288 traditionally published titles, you know, where major publishers got behind books and published those. 288,000, but there were 764,000 books that were self-published. Now, the, uh, the challenging part of the statistics is that we also know that the average number of sales for those titles is fewer than a hundred copies. And I suspect that some of the people, it wasn't even a hundred that were sold. Probably most of those were given away to family and friends. Now that's okay. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for writing a book and it's not just to get rich, but most people who do write a book and go through all the effort to actually get something in their hands that is called a book. Most of them do have the desire to generate some income and rightfully so. And again, writing has treated me very well. I love the process of writing and selling books. But you better be used to the second part of the phrase I just said, which is selling books. I mean, a lot of people still are kind of uh, caught up in the old adage, build a better mousetrap and a world will be the path to your door. Well, that sounds good, but it's really not true anymore. Even if you do build a better mousetrap, you better be very aware of how you're going to market that. How are you going to let people know about that? You've got to do that. So if you're going to write a book, the same principle is true. You better have figured out how you're going to market that. Don't expect even a publisher to do that. And certainly, if you self-publish, you know nobody's in your corner for marketing it other than you, at least initially. So have a clear plan. And of course, that's what we do address right to the bank. We spend most of our time looking at not only how to get something into print, but then how to leverage that, how to get the message out there and how to do that in multiple ways. Well, here's our quotation for the week. This is Latin, so forgive me if I don't pronounce it accurately. Fortis Fortuna Javat. Now, this is a Latin phrase. It's been used as a model of families, military units, and movies. Some of you may be familiar with it. Fortis Fortuna Javat. What it means is fortune favors the brave. Now, if we kind of unpack that, it just means having good things in life is more likely to occur for those who are taking actions, even risk. You know, they're they're people who are more confident in the face of difficulties or dangers. So if you want to increase your good fortune, keep in mind, fortune favors the brave. So take more brave action. Well, let me jump into the questions. Got a lot of them and I want to jump right into them. Malcolm says, I've been in a new position three months 
in a job that uses my training as an RN, but it's in an office setting. It may be the learning curve, but I'm dissatisfied. Should I take these feelings as a sign to start evaluating other options, or should I give myself more time to learn the position before passing judgment? Well, three months is a very short period of time. Now, keep in mind, when you interview for a job, the word interview means to see about each other. Interviewing is not a one-way thing where you're there begging for a job and if they offer you something, then you just accept it and then you hope to find out what it is they really want done. No, if you've interviewed well, you should know, is this a company I want to work for? Are these the kind of people that I want to work with? Is this something, is the mission of the company something that I can be committed to? And if you have done your homework in those arenas, then I think accepting a job ought to imply a two to three year commitment. Now, certainly that's going to vary some if you're flipping hamburgers. Yeah, you can leave after six months. It's no big deal. But in most of the jobs that we talk about here, you ought to be looking at two to three years as a commitment. So if you've been there for three years, something unfortunate occurred in you being hired for that position. What I would do is I would first talk to the employer that you have and see, can your job duties be modified so it's something that's more pleasing? Can you tweak what it is you're doing so that it's a better fit and at least look at being there a year? Now, if those things are impossible, certainly having an RN behind your name makes you a candidate to go get other positions easily, but don't make the same mistake again. So I would start by talking to your current employer and then maybe make start a another job search process where in completing that you would have at least been at this job, you know, nine to 12 months. Stephanie says, Dan, whether including a quotation when writing a book or putting a quotation on an object to sell is permission required to do that. In your 48 days book, you use a lot of wonderful quotations. So I figure you might know some information about that. I'm halfway through the 48 days journey and know it's positively changing my future. Thanks for your writing and for sharing your wisdom. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for your note. Now, part of the issue is the length of what you want to use. If it's just a one or two line quotation, just give the author credit and you'll be fine with that. If you use an entire paragraph or page of someone else's work, then by all means, you'll need to ask the publisher of that material for permission. Now, here's here's an example. In No More Mondays, I use hundreds of quotations. There's lots and lots of things in there. At the very end of the book, there's a passage that is from an inscription on the tomb of an Anglican bishop who's in the crypt at Westminster Abbey. It's one that Joanna and I saw when we were there. For that, because of the length, I asked permission from the publisher of the book where I first found that passage in print. That's one permission I asked for. That's the only one. The book is full of quotations, so I have lots of things in there you know, by Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy Aristotle, Socrates, Donald Trump, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, whoever. I didn't ask for permission for any of those. The only one was that inscription from a tomb because it was a lengthy passage. Now that book is published by Random House, the biggest publisher in the world. So they're very aware of the legalities and they would never want to do anything that was um, on the edges of being legal. So they reviewed every word in that book and see all the quotations that I have. So it's very acceptable 
for short one-line quotations, just go ahead and use it. Acknowledge who said it and go on. I have hundreds of quotations from me, things that people have read in my books, heard in my podcast, read in newsletters that they use. And frankly, I'd be annoyed if they, if everybody came back and asked me for permission, they just use it. It's a way of expanding my name out there. So it's a positive for me and that's very acceptable. Now I ought to, ought to mention too, though, now in no more Mondays, you'll see some cartoons. I have, I think it's about 18 cartoons in there. Now, that's certainly different. I mean, those are copyrighted, and I paid for use of those cartoons. Not only got permission, but paid for the use of those. But those those are things that there are very acceptable guidelines for how to do that. But there's probably more leeway in that than most people realize. Debbie says, last October, I had a stroke and had to have immediate brain surgery. Since that time, I've had a second brain surgery, and I will be having three to four more surgeries within the next year. I don't know how to move forward with getting a job. Can you suggest some strategies for dealing with this kind of situation? Well, Debbie, what you described to me, you have got to be that honest with potential employers. And frankly, in being that honest, you aren't going to get a job. I mean, it would be pretty challenging for anybody to bring you on as an employee, knowing that you've had two surgeries and you're going to have three to four more in the coming year. I mean, the unknowns connected with that are just too great. Now, that doesn't mean that you're stuck, that you can't do anything, but it means that being in a traditional employee position is probably not going to happen. So we just come back to a starting point that everybody has. And that is what are the real marketable skills that you have? What is it that you do really well? And you're going to need to offer those in exchange for the results produced rather than just being paid for your time. So if you do graphic design or you do computer programming or you do data input, you know, whatever it is that you do, be real clear about that and then be willing to be paid by the project rather than by the hour or by the day. Nothing wrong with that. That's very doable. And you'll find employers all day long that will give you opportunities in that kind of framework. Now, you might want to take it a little step farther and really explore the things that are more non-traditional, more creative, more entrepreneurial. Check the 48 low-cost business ideas, the things that I have. That's a It's on a little post-it note over on the right-hand side of the 48days.net site, where you can just scroll down there, open that up, go through that, See if there maybe isn't something there, because with that, the, um, you know, the hope is that you build something that has a little system in place where it creates income for you, even while you're having your surgeries and your recuperation times. See, that's a lot better possibility than something where you just paid for your time showing up anyway. So your best option is going to be something where you can put in place a little system where it creates potential income 168 hours a week rather than just the time that you're able to give when you're feeling great. Matt says, Dan, I've worked as a mechanical engineer in the for the past five years in the aviation industry, I've become increasingly unhappy at my corporate job over the past two years, despite getting excellent performance reviews and wonder if it's time for something different. I've always noticed I want to help people with their problems. And he says, ultimately, he'd like to consider being a physical therapist. The problem is there would be extensive schooling required on one and a half years of prerequisite classes and then three years to get a doctorate. What paralyzes me is that, uh, number one, I feel loyal to my job. 
as I'm performing well, making 50% more than I did five years ago, despite being unhappy. And number two, how to support myself and my family for four to five years while I go to school. I have no debt, including the house and one child. I'm curious how you would handle a situation where the job you want would require you to go back to school for a long period of time. I don't think I can keep my current job and go to school as I have to travel sometimes for my job. I figure I'll need to get part-time jobs while going to school. Well, Matt, you don't, uh, you don't say how old you are, how old your child are. As an example, if you have a child who's five and you're going to spend the next five years being pretty unavailable, I would question the wisdom of doing that. There's too high an opportunity cost in doing that. Now there's an opportunity cost, no matter how you structure this. And that simply means not only the expenses of your schooling, but also the lost income while you're doing that. So be realistic about that. I mean, I'm all for getting advanced degrees. If you're really clear about that's where you want to end up. I mean, if you're 45 years old and have a child who's 20, I mean, that's a lot different. If you have a child who went off to college, that, that means that, that gives you a whole lot more time freedom. And you know, at 45, five years from now, you're going to be 50. So don't think you're too old. If you, you know, the question is, would you rather be 50 and still doing something you don't like or 50 with a brand new start for something you're going to enjoy for the next 30 years? Well, the answer to that is obvious. So yeah, I've spent a lot of time back in school, but I've never put my family in jeopardy in doing that either with time or emotional connections or financially. So I never put us in debt by going back to graduate school. I always figured out a way, whether that was with teaching assistantships or painting houses or remodeling or mowing yards or whatever it was, where I would at least meet our basic expenses, including the expenses incurred by school tuition. So I've, I've never put us in deep debt, you know, in worse shape financially by going back to school. So if you can figure out a way to do that and you have your wife's support, absolutely go ahead and do it. Have fun in the process. Robert says, uh, I've always been inspired by your weekly podcast, information you provide, your insights made me think more about working for myself than for an employer. Now he goes through, he's working on eBay, selling baseball cards. He's passionate about that, doing it part-time, but he wants to move into it full-time. I need to grow the business and we'll be working on a business plan during the summer because with cards to make money, you have to sell a lot of them to make a profit which is why I plan to sell other items as well. I'm currently leaving my full-time job so I can handle more of the duties at home with my son. In addition, I'm going to school part-time, taking an advanced calculus course and want to complete a mathematics program that will help make me a better business person and more logical in terms of how I grow it. Okay, some people say I'm crazy. Well, we know that we know that line by taking this risk. You know, I'll pull that up here as we're going. We know that's an ongoing theme. My wife is on board, carrying the expenses until I get on track. Can you help me get on track in terms of how I should manage my business on eBay? Do I need a business credit card, tax ID number? All right, let me think a minute while John Lennon brings us up to speed here. We know people think you're crazy, but if your wife's on board, you're halfway home. Now, I don't understand how taking an advanced calculus course is helping you. If you're starting a new business, backing away from your job, I wonder how taking calculus fits in. Personally, I don't see the connection between taking a calculus course and making, that a, making you a better business person. 
my gosh, there's a whole lot of things that I think have more connection. And I would caution you against being spread so thin in a startup phase of a business that you can't really do that well. I'd encourage you to be really hyper-focused on getting your eBay business up and running. Now, when you say, do you need a business credit card? I assume you're saying, do you need merchant card status so people can pay you using credit cards? Yes, if you're gonna have any size business at all, even on eBay, I encourage you to do that. I mean, you can use the eBay system and people can use PayPal and other things, but if you get to any size at all, the fees on that are gonna be pretty overwhelming. So you want your own merchant card status. We use one automation whiz. Now that it's not something that's extremely complicated at this point. There are a lot of sources out there for how you can get set up for merchant card status. But again, we use one automation whiz. That's a very robust program that allows us to track our affiliates. We can go back and look at who purchased Redder of the Day in 2006 and market something specifically to them. It allows us to do that kind of specific tracking. So yeah, you want to do that. Tax ID number, yes, get a sales tax, a resale tax license. So get that through your state, not complicated. That allows you to purchase products without paying tax on them. And then as you sell things, you can make a little tax report monthly, but yeah, I'll do that. So yeah, I'll get merchant card status for credit cards, get a tax license. You don't need an EIN. That's an employee identification number. Since you're not going to have employees, I assume for this. So you, you don't need that, but yeah, I'll get merchant card status, resale license or tax ID and a business license and you're good to go. You can do this as a sole proprietor. So you don't need to get a corporate set up. Just keep it simple. Knock it out of the park, Robert. Have fun with it. All right. Here's an interesting question. I work in a job that I'm good at. However, employer and some coworkers treat me very poorly. I try to mind my own business, work hard for the Lord, but it may be time to leave. I can't reason with them as they would yell and scream if challenged. What would Dan do? I want to leave. Well, let me speak for Dan. I know Dan very well. Dan would not work with her for people who yell and scream. I can't imagine any scenario where it would be necessary to put up with that. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of businesses that have what we call a toxic corporate culture, large or small. It, it really doesn't matter. There are just some that are very, very poor environments life is too short. Now, you know, Christians may say, well, this is just a, a cross to bear, you know, or a valley to go through. Well, that may be true. I mean, God can teach us things in times of challenge and suffering. And I know that, but if this is something that looks like it has no end, then it also may be God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, dude, it's time to get out of this rat's nest, move on. So I would take it as such. If this is something a lot of times in looking at situations like this, I help people distinguish between what is it you have control over? What is it over which you have no control? You may not be able to change the corporate environment there. The fact that the boss and coworkers scream and hate each other and are ugly and vulgar and profane. You know, if that's true, it may be more than you could possibly do to change it. What you can control is whether or not you go there tomorrow morning to willingly put yourself in that environment. So no, don't stay there. 
Now, at the same time, you always hear me say, create a transition plan. It doesn't mean you go quit tomorrow and just don't show up, but you ought to, over the next 30 days, create a transition plan. What are your marketable skills? Who are potential matches in terms of companies that you could work with? Interview with them. Interview, as I said earlier, where you see about each other. Find out what kind of environment is there. Talk to people who are already working there. Find a company where the environment is very positive and then give your notice and make the transition. Matt says, I recently started as a graphic designer with the state government. I know this is not where I want to work, but needed the full-time employment. I left an internship at a company I loved. I hope something opens up back there soon. How long should I wait to start a job search there? Any advice would be great. Now, when you do an internship, I mean, one of the reasons for an internship is not just to get college credit, but it's to expose yourself to a company so they see what kind of person you are. I mean, companies bring in interns oftentimes to get an expensive help, but more often than not, so they have a chance to really have extended interviews with people. So if they see a real rising star, they're going to say, we'd like for you to continue after your internship is over. Let's negotiate the terms of you becoming an employee here. So it's never too early to do that. I'm, I'm not sure why you left there. If that's a place where you really wanted to work, you, you should have been working on figuring out a way to stay there while you were there. But it's certainly not too soon, even if you were there just very recently. So, yeah, go ahead and do uh, an aggressive job search. I mean, your job search in getting the job that you now have with the state government should have included the company that you are currently working for as an intern. But be that as it may, that's water over the dam. But yes, you can go right back to them. It's never too early. While it's fresh in their mind, what kind of person you were while you were there as an intern is a great time to approach them about a more permanent arrangement. Clarence says, Dan, do you have any suggestions on books for network marketing? MLM strategies. I figure out how to get myself going. Here is my wife and my website. It's send out cards with their personal identification. Please let me know your suggestion. Thank you for all you do. God bless. Well, send out cards is is a very well-known multi-level marketing company. It's, I mean, I'm signed up with them, which means that I have a little account and I can go in there and I can send out a card to Pierce Mars or David Foster or Dave Ramsey or anybody where I just simply fill out a little form on a computer and it initiates the card goes out. It's sent through them. It's a very reasonable little charge and it's a very efficient way for somebody like me not to have to sit down, pull out a card, handwrite it, put it in an envelope, put a stamp in it and take it to the post office. I mean, I love the system. I don't use it a lot, but I use it some. I love what it does. Now this is a very common proposition. I mean, I I probably, without exaggerating, I probably had 40 or 50 people who invited me to join up, send out cards with them. Um, So it's really, really common out there. You're going to have to use your center of influence. This is not something that has enough unique value that you can hold parties for it. Or now, and I'm sure send out cards is going to you know, say that I'm wrong and all this, but I I don't think that it has enough potential where you're going to want to, 
you know, hold parties or you're going to want to spend your days just going door to door, business to business or house to house, trying to get them to sign up. I don't think you'll ever survive in doing this. So I think it's going to be something that you have to have a way to grow this along with doing something else for real income. Now, if you have a center of influence, I mean, that's what you need to start with. Uh, There's a, I mean, I, I have some groups of influence at this point with newsletter, certainly podcast, the 48days.net site. One of our 48days.net members, John Dale, has started a new company. It's called Moolala. Now, it's one of these like Groupon or Living Social where they have a daily deal, deep discounts. He's put a little separate twist on that, though, where not only do you get a great deal, but you can, if other people sign up as members in their system, you get a small percentage of what they purchase ongoing. I did put a note about that in one of my recent uh, send outs to that group where here's what John is doing. I was very open about it. Here's what John's doing. If you sign up and get other people to sign up as well, there's a way for you to make money doing that. And I looked a little bit ago and I now have 1,027 members who have signed up. Now that'll create some income. I don't think that that's going to create, you know, other than um, going out to eat once a month or something. I could be surprised, but if you don't have a center of influence, it would take months and months and months of effort to get a thousand people in a group like that. I don't think that a program like this has a potential to create real income. If you want to do it on the side, because it's something that you enjoy. Now, as with send out cards, I told you I'm a member. I use that system. I have never, I don't know how to, to suggest to somebody else that they sign up and it's under me. I've never even looked at that. Um, so I, I just didn't approach it like that because I obviously wasn't convinced that it was something that had that kind of potential. Eh, I don't want to spend more time on this, but I, I don't think this is something that you could take seriously as a means of generating income. Michael says, Dan, I read 48 Days and Loved It, still looking for my passion. I don't know what it is. I was not encouraged to dream going up, growing up, so I'm finding it difficult now. My question is, Are there any good books, resources on not living a life of regret and building one's self-esteem? Yes, there are. My gosh. Yes. You know, books on not living a life of regret and building self-esteem. Let me give you just some of the classics that I recommend. Books like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Man, I mean, read that. That That ought to be required reading for high school freshmen. Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. I mean, that's good. I'm going to give you an overview of the seven habits here in a little bit because of a question coming up. Uh, that may be all you need. The The book is a little tedious in reading. Think and Grow Rich, the old classic by Napoleon Hill. Zig Ziglar, See You at the Top. Absolutely read that one. That may I may put that at the top of the list. See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. When you talk about not living a life of regret and building your self-esteem. The Magic of Thinking Big, David Schwartz. Now, these are all old classics. They've been around a long time, but books that will very quickly help you break loose from these barriers of not having been encouraged to dream big and maybe having your own self-esteem squashed a little bit. So you can do that. There are more on my recommended reading list. Go to any of our sites and just find useful resources. You can see my recommended reading list. Uh, that I keep that up to date. Just added some things 
like uh, Seth Godin's Poke the Box, uh, just uh, the brand new book that he's got on taking initiative, start, do something, act. Uh, But I'm constantly adding things there so you can see my recommended list of books. Also, I've got a little, I've got a little audio, an MP3 on how to increase self-confidence. I'm sure we can have Ashley send that to you. I'm not sure how to access that, but uh, that's something that we're happy to just make available. Tom says, okay, here's, here's where I'm going to tie this in. Tom says, how do I apply Covey's seven habits of highly effective people to car sales? How do I convince someone that I'm on their side and convey a win-win when I have so little time with someone I've just met? How do you grow that win-win trust in an hour or less? All right, let me, let me do a recap here. This, this, I'm sure I'll get in a couple more questions, but this one deserves a little time. The seven habits. How do you apply seven habits to car sales? Well, let's do a recap real quickly on what the seven habits were. If you haven't read Stephen Covey's book, that's okay, but I'm sure you've heard reference to these seven habits. They are, number one, be proactive. And, and that includes not only taking initiative, but also taking responsibility for where you are. Number one, be proactive. Number two, begin with the end in mind. Simple kind of process. And if you're selling cars, yeah, you want the person to buy a car, begin with an in mind. Number three, put first things first. And that has to do with planning, prioritizing, knowing what you want to accomplish in advance rather than just showing up and seeing what happens. Number four, think win-win, where it's not if he buys the car, I win, he loses and vice versa. No, it should be at the end of the day, if he makes a purchase, that it was a very fair transaction and that he wins and you win. He wins by getting his transportation issues resolved with a reliable car at a good price. You win because you get a reasonable commission and you can provide for your family and bless others. Number five habit, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Number six, synergize. Number seven, sharpen the saw. Okay, so again, they were be proactive, begin with the end in mind, put first things first, think win-win, seek first to understand, then be understood, synergize, sharpen the saw. Can you do those with someone who walks on the lot and you've got three minutes, which is either going to engage you with them or they're going to be off on their own, never to be seen again? Car salespeople know that you know, 78% of the time, if somebody walks off the lot after looking at a car, they're never going to come back. You know, when somebody says, well, gee, we're going to think about it. We're going to plan our budget. I'm going to talk to my wife about it. I'm going to get the advice of my accountant. It's not going to happen. That's why car salesmen ultimately end up appearing to be pretty pushy because they know it's now or never. You're not going to come back. You're not going to go home and think about it. Either you buy it then or you're not just the way it is. Now I've been in car sales, love the car selling process and love being able to do it well. I always had a lot of fun doing it and I did extremely well. And when I did that, it was years and years ago, but I still could, you know, have an affinity for that. But here's another way to look at this. The selling process involves four components and I'm going to give them to you in terms of percentages of the transaction. 40% of the transaction is building rapport and trust. If people don't trust you, I mean, it doesn't matter if you've got $10 bills for eight bucks, they aren't going to buy from you. And a lot of car salespeople and the way that they approach approach people initially do not establish trust and they're never going to sell a car at any price. So trust and rapport, 40%, 30% identifying the need. 
do I have what this person needs? Have I taken the time to identify what this person needs? Okay, let me go through these and I'll come back. So we got 40% rapport and trust, 30% identify a need, 20% is product presentation or product knowledge. You know, you ought to be able to talk about why a Honda is efficient or why a Volvo is safe or why the new Nissan Leaf uses zero gas and is better for the environment. Yeah, you ought to know that, but that's 20%. 10% then is closing or what my friend Pierce Mars calls gaining commitment. Gaining commitment. I like that. It's a very soft way rather than closing. So can you establish trust and rapport? Yes, you can. By the way you approach, good eye contact, good handshake, talking to people about their needs in advance using some of the principles from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Remember their name. Talk with their interest in mind. You know, the 30% identifying the needs. If they come on and they need a car to get their daughter back and forth to UT as a freshman in college, that's a lot different. You aren't going to try to put them in the BMW 750 where you know you get a big fat commission, but it doesn't match their needs. So just simple things that you can do very, very quickly in a transaction that would be like car sales. Then the 20%, once you know their needs, you've taken the time to establish their trust, which can be done in, in three minutes, doesn't take an hour. Then you can very gently tell them, here's what I would suggest as the best solution for you. If you do those three steps well, the 10% closing or gaining commitment is simply a matter of filling out the paperwork. So yeah, you can do that. That's a great approach. I mean, study the seven habits by all means and be confident that you can do those. You are going to move into a win-win solution with those people not something where it's going to be a win-lose. Great way to approach it, Tom. I hope you enjoy the process of car selling. Again, it's something you can do and do extremely well at, even in this down economy when things are tough. Yeah, people still need cars. They still need transportation. Car sales are swinging back up. I mean, Ford is recording record profits on the new car side. I'd prefer to be in the used car business because you have more of a unique niche and unique products there. And frankly, better margins than on new cars anyway. But hope you enjoy the process. Matt says, I am a 56-year-old self-employed CPA. I'm not passionate about the work anymore. I've read No More Mondays in 48 Days, which have been helpful. I don't yet have a clear picture of what I should do. Should I sell my business to figure out what to do next? Well, yes, yes, and yes, but be careful about the sequence that you have here. Should you sell your business at 56 years old and then try to figure out what you want to do? That scares me a little bit. I would say figure out what you want to do first. Then if there's not a match in your current business, then sell your business knowing what it is you're going to move to. See, that's the real key here is not what you're moving from, but what you're moving to. When people are experiencing fear, guilt, anger, depression, resentment, all those negative emotions, I know they're looking at what has already happened. The way that we find confidence, boldness, enthusiasm, those positive characteristics we look for, we don't find those by just artificially, you know, deciding we're going to have them. I mean, that that is part of the process, but ultimately it comes from we know what we're moving to. 
Those are the result of having a clear sense of what we're moving to and knowing that it's positive things. So you put yourself in a precarious position if you simply stop what you're doing now, knowing that it's not something that you enjoy, but still not having figured out what you're moving to. What can happen, and it can happen even after the successful sale of the business, what can happen is that you very quickly move to concern, desperation, and panic, where it clouds your ability to think clearly. And you take something that really turns out to be a Band-Aid solution rather than something that's a long-term solution for where you wanted to go. So I'd say before you sell your business, I mean, this is not something that's going to take, you know, six months of sitting on a hillside waiting for a bolt of lightning. You know, this is something that ought to, you know, in three or four hours or perhaps a weekend where you just kind of block out everything else and focus on this. You ought to be able to get some ideas about what it is you would move to. What are your skills and abilities? If you're 56 year old, self-employed CPA, you've got some proven abilities. Even though you are required to do a broad spectrum of things, what are the two or three things that when you're doing them, you really feel like you're in the zone? Things that fit you best, not only that you have the ability to do, but you really have a passion for doing those well. What are the recurring themes and things that you're drawn to, even if those are things that are totally unrelated to your CPA business? You know, identify those so you can see the recurring patterns and from those then start to put together the pieces. Okay. This would be a new business or a new service I could provide or a new career that I could move into, but I would have things well in motion. Now, if you're self-employed, chances are you're not going to be looking for a job. If you go in a new direction, you're going to be wanting to get into another business. In most businesses, there's a reasonable startup timeframe for getting it up to speed and being profitable. So, You don't want to be caught, again, with running out of resources or just panicked in that period of time, exhausting the profits of selling your company. So start now so you get a clear sense on what would the first six to 12 months of a new business look like and what would that be? Once you have that identified and a plan in place, then you can sell your business, have a lot of fun, give yourself a month off if you want to or six months off if you can arrange it as such and then start right in knowing that you already have a plan in place. Well, Brian says, I'm used to walking into a business to apply for a position and getting the job shortly after I apply. Now that I'm in a search for a career that fulfills me, I'm finding it hard to treat my job search like it's a job. How do I stay motivated through this seemingly difficult process? Now, Brian, I'm a little confused by this. It's easier for you to do a job search when you're just looking for a job and not something that's fulfilling than when you know what direction you want to go into. You have a clear sense of your purpose, direction, passion, the career that's going to fulfill you. I mean, to me, it ought to be a whole lot easier. You ought to be way more energized in a job search now than in the previous scenario. So I don't really understand. I can't get my head around the fact that it's easier for you to walk in and just get a job than it is for you to know fully what you want to do and to have that clear focus. You're going to come across as a lot more bold, confident, and enthusiastic if you know what it is you want to accomplish. If you don't and you're just looking for a job, good interviewers are going to detect that. That tends to be pretty transparent, and they'll detect that and send you walking. I 
spoke recently, had a lady come up afterwards. She said, you know, and she was like 55 years old. She was one of the ones that, like many, who said, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. She said, I don't have any trouble getting a job. But I found myself getting let go from jobs multiple times in the last few years. I said, sure, that's not unexpected at all. You don't know what it is you have as a clear focus. You don't know what your passion is. You don't know what your purpose is. So you just go out and get a job. You have good people skills. You relate well. You talk easily. You sell yourself well. So it's easy for you to get a job. But I said, knowing that it's not an authentic fit, I said, what you do is immediately you start to sabotage that very position. And ultimately they see it's not a good fit and let you go. And then you're relieved. You're justified in the feelings you were having already. And she says, Oh my gosh. She says, yeah, that's exactly what happens. She said, do I really sabotage it? I said, absolutely guaranteed. If you know it's nothing but an exchange where you're extracting a paycheck, you will not have your heart and passion and dedication and loyalty and reliability in there. You just put in the minimum so you can get a paycheck. So if it is not an authentic fit, you're going to start chipping away. Now, if you know what an authentic fit is, if you've gone through the process, you know what an authentic fit is, then by all means, it ought to be easier for you to do a job search. You ought to come across as a really outstanding candidate when you interview, as opposed to the other people who are just trying to you know, get a 40-hour time commitment so they can get a paycheck. Absolutely. So I don't really understand why it's more difficult now. You ought to be more sustained and it ought to be more easy for you to go through the job search with a clear focus than without. Jason says, Dan, I was listening to one of the podcasts from the last month or so, and you mentioned a book that was written by someone who was awarded over $70,000 in scholarships. I happened to be in the car, didn't make a note of the book or even what podcast I was listening to. Can you help me out? Yeah, I'll jump back and help you out because that's that's something that everybody ought to be aware of. The book was written by a young man who is now a college freshman. His name is Zachary Freeman. Now, one of the ways you can access that, if you're a member of 48days.net, you can just look under members and look up Zach Freeman, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y Freeman, and you'll find him. His book is Free Money, Please. Now, the book about how he got $70,000 in scholarships is about how he applied for scholarships that few other people were, and he got $70,000 in scholarships. He then decided where he was going to go to school based on the fact that he could make the $70,000 cover all tuition and board expenses for the four years. Now that he's in school, He's using his little book, Free Money, Please. And you can go to freemoneyplease.com, I think, as well, to go right to his book. He's got a really cool website, and you can buy his book there, Free Money, Please. But now he's using the sales of his book and speaking engagements that he's getting as a way to raise the funds for getting his MBA. Because he hopes to be able to go right onto his MBA after completing his four-year bachelor's program with no debt, no out of pocket expenses at all, strictly from the money that he got. Now he's using another unique idea to raise the money for his MBA, and he's well on way to doing that. He stopped me at a gas station a couple weeks ago. I, it was very, very cold. I was putting gas in my big truck. I was going to make a pickup of out at our publisher's warehouse for some books. And uh, he stopped, ran over, and just gave me an update. Things are going great. He's getting a lot of interviews, a lot of speaking engagements. I'm really proud of what Zach Freeman is doing. Okay, and with that, let me just remind you a couple things here, and we're going to be out of time. Remind you of the teleseminar I'm going to be doing on who are you and why are you here? 
Now that one I'm going to be doing on March the 17th. It's a Thursday evening. Be watching your email. I'm confident that you are either watching things through 48days.net or getting our um, on my subscriber list for the newsletters or in the blog. We'll be letting you know about it in multiple ways so you can participate with us in that little venture. Who are you and why are you here? It's never too late to ask that question. It's never too early to ask that question. But no matter where you are, and it is an ongoing process. It's not something we figure out one time and then it's over. It's an ongoing process. Hey, you can shoot questions into me. Just go to the podcast link, shoot a question in there, or send an email to askdan at 48days.com. Thanks for being part of this 48 Days family. We're all on this journey together in finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, and profitable. Have a great week.